0: I do like using unusual things. I think there was one show we did for Vivian where it was all about recycling. So we were actually raiding the bins in the office for um, paper clips and discarded bits of paper and biscuit packets and things that that, that we incorporated into the hair, yeah.
1: Didn't you once use Coca-Cola?
0: I've used Coca-Cola a lot. The sugar content in Coca-Cola is a great setting agent on hair.
1: I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Sam McKnight is head and shoulders above regular fashion because his focus is hair. As a session stylist at the start of his career back in the 1980s, Sam McKnight made a leap from salon to studio soon becoming the hairdresser for famous fashion companies, from Karl Lagerfeld, Chanel through Gucci Girls and the wild world of Vivienne Westwood. Add star models as well as work for fashion shoots, Vogue covers or pop videos, and the uber bright stylist became a star to match the era of the supermodel. An emperor of hair for Princess Diana as much as for Kate Moss, the royal king of hairdos has come a long way from his family's Scottish roots. Let's hear all about this and his passion for gardening from Sam himself. It's great for me to be here in your London studio, um, especially as I usually bump into you somewhere in the distant world. Um, Tell me about it. Tell me about your life as a stylist doing so many things. What do you think of first when you want to describe yourself?
0: Oh, God, when I want to describe it. Well, it changes so much. I, I have so many different roles, I guess, and, and I have done so many different things in my career. I mean, it went from working in a salon, which was, back in the day, it was Maltan Brown in, in South Molton Street, which I loved. I loved your podcast with Mrs. B. She was my boss. Lovely place to work. And moving on, I started there doing photo shoots, which was kind of relatively new... Um, avenue for hairdressers to to go down because there weren't really many of us. It was very few people just doing hair and photo shoot then. And then after that, after kind of, you know, coming of age with the supermodels, meeting wonderful people like Princess Diana, I, I kind of then progressed to working with people like Carl and doing lots of shows. And the pandemic kinda of changed a lot of that for me because I've had my own line, very small line of hair products for a few years, but the pandemic forced me to look at the now and kind of made me think, do I really want to continue doing exactly the same thing? Is it time to do something else? I'm I'm quite good at reinventing myself and finding other things that to do i I think for me too it's important to keep being motivated and inspired and it's it's, you know know what you're like in this business we're all about the new so i'm always embracing new things so i've come up with more hair products during the pandemic uh, a much cleaner way of doing things and this year had a fantastic time being a judge on the great british blowout which was uh That was real fun to do. So I'm all for doing new things. I became a session stylist because I was working in the salon at Moulton Brown and I had been sent out to do a couple of sessions, i.e. photo shoots. Uh, One of them being with Vogue magazine, where I met... Liz Traberis and Anna Harvey. That was the beginning of my career as I am now. Anna and Liz were young editors and we got along really well and we kept working with each other as you do. So I had a great time working with Anna and Liz at Vogue and that inspired me to actually leave the salon and just do photo shoots. Now, a lot of my friends and colleagues were absolutely horrified that I was going to even attempt to do these things called sessions or photo shoots and not not actually be working in a salon because there wasn't that many of them around but well like when you're young you take all the risks oh, i'll take the risk it's fine i can always sort of do a few haircuts to make up my wages and i used to drive around in my old battered old car and do a few haircuts and that lasted a couple of years but the first but-
1: t- the first time i saw you you were everywhere it wasn't just that i saw you at one um, mm-hmm. designer you had chanel and gucci and i'm vivian
0: westwood weren't you with her i i worked with vivian for what see the 80s was for me that this was all in the 90s for the 80s i left the salon in 1980 then i spent a few years living in new york and working in new york so i was around for i mean i met naomi on her first go see so i was around for all the girls christy linda cindy claudia you know, we all kind of came of age together. I'm a little bit older than them, so I was on all the shoots with that well, one, all of them obviously. But I was on a lot of the shoots with those girls. So I came through that era. Then started doing shows in the late '80s. And for everyone in London, from John Rocha uh, to Catherine Hamnett to I remember Lynn Franks, the lovely Lynn Franks, uh, was my first agent in London. So Lynn got me involved with London. Fashion Week on the very first one. So I've helped out lots of designers from the, the beginning, like Berardi, Matthew Williamson, Catherine, and, and it's been a real it's been a real pleasure to still be involved in London fashion with the guys who are next door to us are 16 Arlington. So I've been helping them with their show. And it's 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 always a nice thing to be able to be involved in helping young designers in London from the beginning because they don't have much money do they here it's not a huge um...
1: this is the question right through even if you've got a lot of money isn't it you've somehow got to go from the first ideas to the end game it's no good just thinking about doing something it has to be achieved yeah and how do you do that is it all in the prep is it all in the preparation lots of texting and so on or is it really all inside your head so that you have a conversation with a designer and then you kind of dream it
0: through for yourself it's all of the above Depends on the designer. Usually, Vivian has a very clear idea of what she wants, but that can change in the course of an evening doing tryouts. You know, that can very quickly, as, as, as Vivian does, sort of evolve into something else and something completely different. So it's a collaborative journey always. Carl was different. Carl would have, quite often, Carl would have a drawing in it of a very specific thing in mind. So I would maybe get a couple of girls in my studio here. We'd do a few versions. Carl loved a good text, so I could send him the pictures and he would send me back, yes or no. So that was an evolution too. And then a week before the show, we would kind of finalise what we were going to do. Some designers, you met them the night before the show. For Richard Quinn this year, the show was postponed because um, the Queen had passed Mm -hmm. away. I think it was the Queen's funeral that day, so the show was postponed. So we didn't actually do the hair test until... Four hours before the show, but he had sent me some reference pictures, and we did it, did that. There's a lot of working on the hoof. There's a lot of sort of toing and froing, and then. There is a deadline, so minds have to be made up, you know. And quite often, the designer's collection is not ready till the night before, so their idea changes. But it's very, very much a collaboration between designer, stylist, myself, and makeup artist. That's that. That's the kind of world that it lives in.
1: I, I want to go and ask you a little bit about Karl Lagerfeld mm. because you must have done so many of his shows. I don't know if you've added them up, but what was it like on his side? Did he fit in with your plans, or was it the other way about? And how did you come? to the end product.
0: I know I very much fitted in with Carl's plans. I, th- I think that was the way of Carl though, wasn't it? And of course, because he's so brilliant, he he was so, such a, a magician. He was such a fantastic, creative person to work with. I mean, he was brilliant. He would, sometimes I'd get a drawing and I knew from the drawing whether he wanted exactly that or he'd, he'd sometimes put a few keywords in which I had to get Amanda Harlick to to translate for me sometimes because I wouldn't be able to read it or it would be in French, a word that did. And so so we had a bit of fun doing that. And Amanda and I would liaise and and Virginie, and we would kind of come up with some... Because sometimes he would want something specific, and then sometimes there would be two or three different images. Oh, maybe a little bit of this and maybe a little... So I knew he wasn't quite sure. So we would all, again, work together collaboratively to present him some things for him, for, to inspire him too. And then we'd kind of whittle it down to, we'd meet a week before the show because sometimes there may be wigs involved. So if there were wigs involved, that would need five days of prep. I mean, you saw in my studio next door, you saw the wigs that were made. They weren't actually wigs. There were pieces that were massive ponytails in the supermarket show. Because uh, Carl wanted them really exaggerated, and he had done a drawing that had a little bit of a squiggle, almost like a sort of boy Georgie bit of fabric or something in it. So he let us have uh, a room in the atelier where we tore up shreds of Chanel tweeds and silks and different fabrics, incorporated them into the ponytail, much to the horror of the ladies in the atelier. These
1: absolute treasures, and you mean that he just, you just tore them up?
0: tore them up into strips, and, and they became part of the hairstyle.
1: Well, that's very
0: Carl, I'm sure. He, <laughs> alwa- he
1: always used to tell me that um, he woke up in the middle of the night and had his best ideas, and that he had a piece of paper beside his bed, and he scribbled it, and then in the morning it was there and it was all finished. Did he make that up, or do you think it was a little bit true? Oh,
0: absolutely true. I mean, I would often get almost on the back of an envelope, kind of, but they had just... I had an idea, scribbled it down, and this is what he would like. Sometimes he'd do it in front of you, just as you were leaving. Oh, about the next show, I have an idea. The Next show? Then, yeah.
1: Oh, well.
0: Oh, no, because as soon as one show was finished, he didn't want to talk about it. It was on to the next. And I mean, I loved him for that. It was incredibly inspiring.
1: I feel I want to go on talking about Karl Langfeld forever. But I do know that you are not just at fashion shows. You're also famous for working on campaigns and... Vogue covers, pop videos, awards, photography. I don't know what there is that you don't do. Tell me about all that. You're you're responsible for so many iconic images. Do you have a favourite?
0: Oh, God, no. You guys look like having a favourite child. There, there's so many... I've been involved in so many different things. It's it's hard to say. But some of the iconic Vogue covers from the 80s and 90s that I'd worked on with, Christy and Linda and Cindy, kind of... They are embedded in my mind. There's one particular one of Linda on the roof of Patrick Demartier's studio with a bright blue sky behind and a gold leather jacket. And Sarah Jane Hoare was the stylist. And it was just one of those, we knew at the time how amazing this cover was gonna be, but you never were quite sure if the powers that be were gonna run it as a cover. So you'd be kind of crossing your fingers and legs and I hope they run this as a cover, which they did. And it, that's one of my favourites to this day. That's, that really is one of my favourites. Favorite, I've done about 30-odd Vogue covers with Kate. And there's one special one with Nick where it was a red background. She had short, wispy hair. And there was sort of lots of gold jewellery. So it was a, a little bit of a... There was a disco feel to it with sort of gold highlights and things. And that's... The energy of that Vogue cover still holds up to this day. And And... The first one I'd worked on with Princess Diana was really special because it was the first time she'd kind of sat for a Vogue cover like that in, in her kind of... Um, as, she, as a grown-up woman, you know? And, um, and she had just stopped biting her nails. And she sat like you, <laughs> Susie, exactly like that. She was a black neck, She sat like that. She was so, prou- she was so proud <laughs> of her, her nails that she had stopped biting. And then she just put her chin down. I remember it really well. She just put her chin like that between pictures and Patrick took the picture and it's such a beautiful image, you know. So I have when I did my exhibition in my book, we whittled it down from forty thousand images. Oh wow. Which was quite emotional. You know, you get a story and there's ah oh, 20 of these have hats on. We don't need these. So it goes down like that. And then you get down to a few thousand and you start really looking into them. And I can remember the day, I can remember who was there. Quite often this subject you haven't seen for 30 years or something, or they've passed away or, or there's a really special memory of that day and it kind of comes flooding back. And what's been so amazing for me about social media is that it's put me in touch with a lot of people that I haven't seen for decades. And so we all kind of communicate again. Whereas 20 years ago, once you'd stopped working with designers or models or photographers, because everything moves in cycles, doesn't it? You wouldn't see those people. You might not see them again because the girls have moved back to Wisconsin and they have three children. Now I can see that. Oh, my God, it's so nice to see you. How amazing. You're a grandmother. Fantastic. So it's been a wonderful way of kind of putting a thread back to the past.
1: Do you also see the way that a woman is changing how her hair is done going right back to Princess Diana it certainly looked to me as though when she had her freedom when she had the divorce and separated that her hair was just much easier it was much less stiff it was just loose it was less
0: fussy less fussy in every way and
1: and is this typical of people who changing life changing hair is it something that you've seen over your years
0: I think it's a great barometer of change for a woman for a man for anyone really it's an easy thing to change isn't it And, and I think it's it's something that sends out a lot of signals. You know, it, it it exudes confidence, or you can hide behind it, or it, 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 and it marks change. Yes, absolutely, it's a psychological weapon, or even a barrier. Sometimes you can use it so many different ways.
1: And you yourself are not um, just behind the camera; you're also in front of the camera. You share a lot of your techniques with them. Um, tutorials. Dejuries, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I saw that on with Netta Porte when you were doing that. Well, there must have been a godsend doing all that during the pandemic. But how involved? do you feel in showing yourself doing this work?
0: Well I think you have to nowadays especially if you're leading a hair care brand you have to demonstrate how things work and I think the internet has created a great an audience for information so people young people especially now don't want to stick with one hairstyle young people want to experiment so their hunger for knowledge knows no bounds so we can't keep up with the content we shoot content in our studio all the time and when i'm on shoots or backstage at shows i mean one of the most important things for us is to get that content out there so we're filming all the time it's a huge part of my job now that that, i mean that part of it didn't exist before
1: So it was 2017 that you launched Hair by Simon McKnight, mm. and um, you now have different bottles to add to your growing empire. Well, if you do add to things, what are you adding? What do you think, I can do more of that, or I want to do something different? What do the new
0: products do? Well, for me, our products are high-performance they're based on performance, but what we've done is we are in recyclable and recycled materials. And I just had a meeting this morning about new materials going forward. And I think we have made a breakthrough in sustainability for, for, the, for the next wave of products. So what I'm about is creating products that really, really work very quickly, make it easier for people to do their own hair and make them as sustainable as possible. And everything has to be vegan and cruelty-free. So we're kind of trying to embrace technology and nature, and performance.
1: And it's also about each product that's been dropped or launched in an individual way. It isn't just, oh here's a bunch of new things, let's get them out there.
0: Each no, we, we just through. launched our shampoos and conditioners a couple of months ago. But going forward we are giving each product its own space. We're not gonna throw like twenty products down, a whole range of products everything that has is released has to have a reason. It has to have um meat a few criteria before it actually gets out there. And I think we just launched a jail recently and we th- that came out by itself on its own so that there's nothing else around it. So it gives us some space for people to get to know it. We're very small, very young brand. So we, we, we need to get our message across very clearly.
1: Remember you telling me once that you had to use seawater because um, the water that you had brought and all your kit um, had disappeared when you got to the place where you were going to film. You thought, where can I get the water from? Ah, I'll get
0: seawater. <laughs> that was a while ago. We did it. We did a shoot in Saint Bart's with Kate Moss, and none of uh, Val Garland was doing makeup. Her kit and my kit didn't show up, uh, so we had, I had no um, hair, no hair products, nothing. So Luckily, it was cake moss. So we got some seawater from the sea in a spray bottle and cake just carried it off really well. And it ended up being a cover on quite a few vogues. But I think I'm all about using unusual things in hair. We used coloured feathers once at Dries van Noten oh. to give the girls colored roots on their hair. But instead of, instead of using their own hair, we, we got feathers and we kind of glued them onto the parting and hair sprayed them down, but they were bright colored feathers. So they looked, they had a very strange sort of surreal finish to them. You couldn't really see exactly what it was. So it made you curious. And the colours were just, the colours were magnificent, and, and yeah. So I do like using unusual things. I think there was one show we did for Vivian where it was all about recycling. So we were actually raiding the bins in the office for um, paper clips and discarded bits of paper and biscuit packets and things that, that, that we incorporated into the hair. Yeah.
1: Didn't you once use Coca Cola?
0: I've used Coca Cola a lot. The sugar content in Coca Cola is a great setting agent on hair.
1: Let's talk about your friend, this wonderful person, the magnetic Kate Moss. Mm. You both go back a long way. And I believe you actually designed a Sam McKnight hairspray with her in mind. And it was called Cool Girl.
0: Is that right? That's right. It came about because Kate's got that sort of iconic, messy, cool girl hair. But it's not always instantly achievable, because sometimes we would have to you know, use a lot of mousse because she has quite fine hair. Use a lot of mousse, blow dry, da-da-da, lots of steps. Um, so I said, I need a product here that's going to make Kate's hair look a little lived in, a little messy with a little volume, but I needed to do it instantly. And there were there were things on the market that were really too heavy for her hair. So I developed a very, very light texturizing mist. We called it Barely There Texturizing Mist because it doesn't feel like you've got a lot of product in your hair because she doesn't like a lot of product in her hair. And it's instant. It's 20 seconds of shushing it around. And we're thinking, what are we going to call this? What are we going to do with all these different names? And then somebody said, okay, it's kind of the ultimate cool girl. Why don't we just call it cool girl? So cool girl was born and it's now our best-selling product.
1: Tell me about the supermodels. We've heard about it so much, we've talked about it a lot just now, but it was an amazing era and running on into the right through the 1990s. Where were you actually at the time? Were you in London? Were you in New York? It was this magic moment for you and for everybody.
0: I was in New York mainly from 1982. Till 2000. So, yeah, I was... But, I, you know, as we fashion nomads know that we're never in one place too long. So, but I had a place in New York and a place in London that I flitted between and Europe in between that and all the rest of the world. It was a lot of travelling. It was back in the day when, you know, exotic trips to exotic places were commonplace, you yeah? know. So I was definitely a lot of the time in New York then, yes.
1: So tell me more about your life in New York with those amazing women who were so much part of the fashion world. In fact, they were often, I felt that they were more important than the clothes, the supermodels, that it was all about them and much less about the clothes they were wearing. Do you think it's true?
0: I think there's probably a huge element of truth in that, yes, because it was a combination. Those girls wore those clothes magnificently. And the designers would throw clothes at them because those girls were the silent movie stars of the era, weren't they? They were mm-hmm. kind of, and the clothes looked great on them, and they knew it. And I mean, Linda sometimes would say, "Why do I get? Why always die? Always get the, the terrible outfit?" And it was because she could make she could make an M and S, you know, ten pounds dress look like Chanel because they were really, really good at what they did. They honed their craft. And the, the thing is they were allowed to hone their craft because there weren't that many of them. And the business... We kind of forget well, us oldies kind of forget how small the business was then. It wasn't a huge business like it is now. It was the beginning of it being big. So those sort of let's say ten models were it, it was distilled into them wearing the clothes, and they they sold the clothes. They so it was it really was all about them, wasn't it? it, it all the attention was on them. I mean, it was high glamour.
1: Going from the models themselves to life, when you're always moving around, I'm sure it's still true, how do you actually travel with the kit and with a team? Uh, Is there special things that you do that you insist on taking with you? Now we, simple people who get on planes, discover that you um, can't even have the things that you love to do your hair with because they get taken away. Of course, yeah. So how do you manage it?
0: um we carry a lot of bags with us we have a lot of, i mean probably a minimum of six Ooh. and if we're doing shows in milan where we have you know, 80 models we will have up to 20 bags i am not i'm quite good at editing you know i i am and my team are really good at that because otherwise the excess baggage bill goes through the roof and the, the management of it is and you know I've been doing it a long time. I don't need to overdo it, it's okay. But we'll probably go to Milan with 14 bags. If we're doing lots of wigs and things, then there will be more bags. So it's a lot, it's a lot of baggage. It's a lot of team. You know, we have a core team of maybe Ten people who travel together. But then if we have a show of 100 models, I'll need 30 assistants. So we, we employ them in the location where we're going to go. It's, we've been doing it for so long that we've kind of got it down, you know. Never runs that smoothly, but we, we, we think we've got it down. I so you
1: know? like this idea of taking 14 bags yeah. on my trip. I don't think I've got enough clothes <laughs> to fit them. <laughs> You did this extraordinary exhibition in 2016 and it was in London at Somerset House and I think it was called Hair, wasn't it? It was called Hair. Yeah. And um, it was a celebration of your career but it wasn't just that. There were so many amazingly interesting things that were shown and also how did you feel about it? I mean it, it was your day job for four decades laid out there in a room so that everybody could see it. Did you feel strange about it? Did you
0: feel proud? Oh, I felt strange and I felt proud. I mean, I felt... I'll tell you how it came about, is I had all these boxes and boxes and boxes of all my old tear sheets that I thought, oh, the last move I made, I thought, I don't I, I don't have enough room for these. What am I going to do with them? Let's get them onto digital. So I found a lady called Tori to digitalise the archive. And she showed it to a girl called Shona, who happened to work for Somerset House. And they came to me and said, we think we could do an exhibition of this. And I laughed and said, really? What do you think people are interested in these old pictures? And they said, no, no, well, think we could do something that, that kind of shows people another asp- aspect of hairdressing, because people think of hairdressers as working in salons, but actually there's a whole world here. Where, and, and it was kind of... There'd been a lot of interest on the internet for backstage stuff, so they thought there was there was a good idea for an exhibition. Then that they had all these cultural references, and and when they presented it to me, I thought, I actually you know that that makes sense. And Chanel very kindly gave us nine couture outfits, as did Vivian Westwood, so we could recreate wigs from from certain shows, and um, it was. Yeah it was a really proud moment and my mum came which was amazing because my mum's never really understood what I do. My my mum my, I'm from a coal mining village in Scotland so my mum proud as she was she'd never, she'd never been in that world before. Um so it was really nice because she passed away last year so it was really really lovely that she actually got to see that. She finally got to understand what I do. You know, that, that was, that was, do you know what? That was, for me, almost the most important part, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, of course, and we all want our um, family to understand why why we love so much fashion, yeah. hair, everything. Yeah. Well, we are yeah. devoted to it, but it's, it's always difficult yeah. to explain. I love about your Instagram is that it's not just about hair, but it's also about your beautiful garden. It's a gorgeous garden. And with the same incredible attention to the colours and textures as in your hair styling, it must be a joy to be out there quietly in the garden in all seasons. After all the flying and studios and backstage work, here you are in a beautiful, natural place. Is that what saves you for your work?
0: Oh, that's definitely my saviour. Oh my God, absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah, it's because it's me by myself. It's me time and I can kind of potter about. I've got a couple of guys who come in every Monday for four hours and do all the hard work and I can potter about. I grow my own vegetables. I've just picked the last butternut squash, which is huge. I'm really proud of it. I'm going to have to eat it, but I'm going to get lots of pictures of it first. I've got loads of quince there that I'll cook with um, there in the shed. I cut the last dahlias today, which kind of broke my heart uh, and it will all get cut down. Until the crocuses come out at the end of January, we'll see some color again. So I only really have sort of November, December, January. There's three months of nothing there, but it's dark outside anyway, so we don't see it anyway. But it is my, it is my absolute joy. And what I'll do now is I will do my planning for the summer. I'll do my daily order, and because this month I have two and a half thousand tulip bulbs going into. So it's going to be glorious. Now you have to come and see it next
1: year. Right, I will invite myself as soon as I hear that. You're
0: invited.
1: I'm very interested in the idea of fashion giving out messages. I think for men or women, it's now very interesting because men are much more um, brave, I think I would say, and certainly much more willing to put their hair in a position that's saying, saying something. Whereas for years, men would not really show anything about their life. Um, and of course this has been a fact always for women. Is it your best way of sending out a message? Is it through your hair? Like thinking of um, Princess Diana when it was all over at the palace, cutting her hair, having it free, having it soft and making her beautiful. Are there stories that come out with every hairstyle?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, look at, look at um, all iconic hair, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, it, you know her from her hair. Elvis Presley, yourself, Susie Mankers—you know, you you have that silhouette, and you're sending out a message with that. Now, in the Queen, the Queen sent sent out that message of steadfast, um, something that didn't change, you know, and and that's what she stood for, and she understood that. Boris Johnson, on the other hand, a whole other message he was sending out because he was, he he could he he could used that very well as a PR tool. He used it very well as a distraction. So people use their hair in different ways. And you're right about men having much more exciting hair. Now, I think we're going back to Beau Brummel kind of era, but I think the internet has made people really aware of their hair. I, th- I think modern young women don't like to have the same hairstyle every day. They like to change their hair all the time. And I just love that. I think it's amazing. I think it's incredible. You
1: You must tell me about the big blowout TV programme, because that is pretty amazing and very much out there. What's your idea for it? What was the plan?
0: Well, I had a message on my Instagram account from a lady called Zoe from um, Love Productions. Of course, I googled that straight away and they were responsible for the Great British Mm Bake Off and the Sewing Bee and the Pottery Throwdown. So they kinda of had me at that, although they didn't know that. So they were they wanted to do this um celebration of hair. They called it a celebration of hair. And I mean I was interested straight away because I, the hairdressing industry has not had a great time over the pandemic, and since then it's been it's it's been really difficult for them because the government didn't get behind them till till Millie Kendall from the British Beauty Council set a, set a light under them. And and you know that they've had a very, very difficult time. And I thought I want to be involved in this. This sounds great. And I thought I'm probably not going to enjoy it. It's probably going to be a bit of a nightmare recording and da, 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 da. but we had six weeks of recording in April and I loved every minute. It was amazing. AJ Odudu, our presenter, was just she is just fabulous. Uh, Lisa Farrell, the other judge, was great. We got along really well from the beginning. The contestants were lovely. It was so it was so lovely to mentor. Um, 11 young stylists and yes, we judged them but we tried to help them at the same time. It's the same... Sort of idea is the bake-off. It's warm, it's cozy, it's comforting, it's not. As soon as they said, we don't want to be mean and nasty, they had me because I didn't want to be part of anything like that. And I think they did it really, really well.
1: And what did you spot there, or what do you think in general about the next generation of um, hairstylists who are just coming up now? Do you see them very different in the age of different ways of getting communities to listen and follow? Has things changed very much?
0: I think they all have to be really adept at social media now. And also they can't rely on just a cut and blow dry. Their skills need to be more varied. They need a wider roster of of skills. So they need to... But I, I find them all really eager to learn and really eager for that. And I, I think, I honestly think that the internet and social media has sparked that, you know, because there's much more inspiration for them you know, at hand on their phone, they can, you know, for me, I have a library of reference books that I've kept for years and years. And I'm ashamed to say I hardly look at them now because I get all my references from that. So and the younger generation are way ahead of me on that one, you know,
1: talking about social media, has it really changed hairstyling? And has it changed it because you are braver and in more enthusiastic? Or because the people who receive these hairstyles actually have broadened their spirit and their ideas and their looks.
0: I think it's probably the latter. I think it's definitely people. Ha- people are exposed to more um, looks, more different hair. People are products have gotten much easier to use in the last ten years. Products are really, really like hair tools are much easier to use than they were before they're much easier accessed for real people real people want to do different things with their that's why we developed ours in a way that our products are very easy for people to use themselves they're not complicated and i think people are responding to to what they see on the internet thinking oh i can do that because there's a tutorial on such and such a channel and they'll watch it and they'll, they'll be able to do it themselves because we as hairdressers are supplying them with the um the products and the tools which they can buy on the internet and there's a tutorial on how to do it and there is an influencer looking great having done it herself so it's it's really all those things together Um, making it much easier for people to learn and less daunting. But there's also, apart from that, celebrities are embracing different looks on their hair now, whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, a celebrity had one look that they stuck to, maybe two. We just did a survey recently. Uh, We commissioned a survey and we found that 82% of women only ever do one or two things with their hair and we think okay we're going to change this you know and i think the younger generation are embracing this and when you see when you work with celebrity now you don't really want to do the same thing too many times you have to change it up because there is that social media internet hunger for the new so i think that has really sparked this huge interest in hair and makeup, really.
1: I love the way you're so enthusiastic about everything. It's um, very
0: inspiring for the rest of us. Well, it kind of keeps me, it keeps me going, doesn't it? I, I'm interested in the new things. I'm interested in what young people are doing. I'm, I'm really interested to see that. And I embraced social media quite early. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm addicted, but I'm very keen.
1: I know I could ask you all sorts of questions about the trends of the next season and very important things. But can I ask you a question that's important to me? Should I change my hair? Should I make it different? Should I tweak it or transform it? Should I be a different Susie who appears at the shows next season?
0: Susie, that is entirely up to you. That has that has got to come from you and you alone. Because that, hair is not just about hair. It's about feeling. It's about how you're feeling. And I think women who change their hair drastically when they're not really feeling it, are probably making a mistake but if you're feeling it you go for it absolutely
1: right well when you get a call from me sometime in the middle of the night you'll know what it's about (laughs) (laughs)
0: it's
1: been such fun talking to you i know of course we all know that hair is so important to us and the way we feel and the way our lives are and um, you just make it fun and i know how much hard work goes behind it but still it's fun to listen to you
0: Thank you. And it's you know what? It's a really fun job to do, I have to say. My life has been full of fun. Thank you.
1: I love talking with you, Sam McKnight. In this crazy world, you have kept your feet on the ground, literally in your passion for gardening, and also by launching in 2017 your own Hair by Sam McKnight range. Sam, I do understand how hard you work, but I love that you make it all such fun. Creative Conversations with Suzy Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Yerg Zuba, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.